If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we're going to look at the last beatitude, which is found in verses 10, 11, and 12. Unlike the other beatitudes, which are contained in a single verse, this has two additional verses to broaden our understanding of this particular beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we saw last week, and I'll mention it again today, I think these last two Beatitudes, the seventh and the eighth, are probably more misunderstood today than in the past, than, and they're mis- more misunderstood than any of the other Beatitudes. There are two possible misconceptions. First of all, for the seventh Beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, there is a sense that I can do this. This is within my capacity. All the others were a little shaky. It, it seems like too much for us, but I can be a peacemaker. With the eighth Beatitude, I think many people in this country, particularly right now, think this does not really apply to us. After all, we live in the United States. We have great freedoms, which Davis pointed out were accomplished by a great cost that we have unparalleled freedom in human history to worship publicly. We do not face persecution and we don't anticipate facing it at least any time soon. So I think many people, when they come to this last beatitude, feel that the blessings that Jesus pronounces here really don't apply to us because persecution isn't part of what's happening in our lives. Let's review the seventh because I think it gives us entry into the eighth. We saw last Sunday that peace deals with reconciliation. There can be no peace if there's no reconciliation and no reconciliation without peace. The two must come together at the same time. There must be peace and reconciliation. Secondly, we saw that peace is a costly matter. It certainly is a precious thing, but it is also costly. Its value comes from the great cost that was spent in winning it. The supreme example is the death of Jesus. That there might be peace between God and man required the death of his son, the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, and I'll spend a bit of time here, we saw that peace is not appeasement. This is one reason that peace is costly. In most cases, appeasement seems the much easier route to take. If you want to be a peacemaker, then oftentimes this will involve confrontation. Um, We need to be very clear that there is such a thing as true peace and false peace, just as there is real gold and fool's gold. Um, I mentioned these scenarios last week. Imagine that you are a geologist working on a particular mountain range and in the course of your work you notice that one mountain is about, a side of it is about to collapse and if you notice right below it is this village and all things being equal, when this happens the village is going to be wiped out. So you go down to the village and tell people you need to get out of here because in fact this mountain is about to fall. But they become upset with you and say you have disturbed our peace. You should be a peacemaker. Keep your mouth shut. You're scaring the people. Or imagine that you go to see your doctor and you feel fine, but it's time for a checkup. 
And after all the poking and prodding and the tests and all, the doctor says, there's something seriously wrong with you. It can be, we've caught it early, it can be dealt with, but there's something seriously wrong with you. Do you say to the doctor, hey, doctor, you're, you're, you've disturbed my peace. Um, why didn't you just tell me that everything is fine? Or imagine that you're an Old Testament prophet and God has spoken to you about coming judgment because the people are disobedient. You go to the people and warn them of this impending judgment if they do not repent and return to God. Well, other prophets are saying, no, everything is fine. Peace, peace. You come to be known by the king as the troubler of Israel. That's what Ahab called Elijah. Or as they said of Jeremiah, this man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. If you are going to be a peacemaker, what should you do? Uh, we need to recognize that appeasement is not peace. Let me add two more scenarios I did not mention last week. This is you. You are you. You're at your job and things are going well, but you find out that things are being done in an illegal and perhaps even immoral way. Do you say to the appropriate person or persons, you know, what we are doing is wrong. We need to change this. Or do you leave the matter alone? Another scenario, you or you, and in dealing with a friend who is not a Christian, tells you, they tell you how well his or her life is going, and this person says to you, what else do I lack? I've got it all. And then he or she asks you, what do you think? It's not likely that they would do that, but in the off case that they do, do you speak of his or her need of that which is really important, that is peace with God? Or do you allow that person to bask in their own security? You may say, if I do what a peacemaker should do and not appease, people will get mad at me. They will respond in an antagonistic way. They might turn away from me and reject me. They might, they might persecute me. You mean because you are right? Because you have acted rightly? Because of righteousness? And now we come to the eighth beatitude. And we find that, in fact, it does have something to say to us. You see, the transition from peacemaking to persecution is much more natural than we might imagine. If we look at the work involved in being a peacemaker, that it often involves confrontation, then persecution does not seem so strange. Think a moment. Being reconciled to God before we could be reconciled to to God, there had to be an acknowledgement that he is right, we are wrong, we are sinners, and we need forgiveness. If we tell people that, the result will be hostility. They don't want to know about that. But you might say, if I'm only trying to do what is right, why do people respond with hostility? It doesn't seem to make sense. I think we need to recognize how genuinely offensive righteousness is to people. Right behavior is, in fact, offensive to many people. The writer of Proverbs observed, Bloodthirsty men hate a man of integrity and seek to kill the upright. If you think I'm making a bigger deal of this than I should, just consider that perfection came into the world and he was put to death. He who was without sin was hated 
and put to death. So we should not be surprised if, in fact, we are persecuted for doing what is right in God's eyes. In looking at this eighth beatitude, I want us to consider four things. What is persecution? Why are we persecuted? How do we prepare for persecution? And what can we learn from persecution? First of all, the first question, what is persecution? In verses 11 and 12, two types of persecution are mentioned, which fall into the um, two categories. Three types, two categories. The first type is what we normally think of, that is physical persecution. Well, that is when a person is persecuted, the physical aspect of a person is affected. They're imprisoned, or they're tortured, or they're put to death. And indeed, the history of the church and the contemporary story of the church today in many parts of the world is marked by physical persecution. People who have been physically persecuted. In Hebrews 11, we read of people in the Old Testament who are tortured, flogged, chained, stoned, sawed in half, and put to death by the sword. But because this is what we normally think of when we think of persecution, we imagine again that this verse or this beatitude has little to say to us. But Jesus continues with another category, verbal persecution. Two types here, insult and slander. When people insult you, Jesus says. One writer has said, you may kill a person as well in his name as in his person. That is to say, when you speak against someone, it does damage. We know the saying that sticks and stones, you know that. But words, in fact, do hurt. And insults do hurt. Jesus lists them among persecution, among our sufferings. But then there is slander, when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you. you know, and this is the hard one, because for all your efforts to do what is right, to follow Christ, to live a righteous life, it can be particularly painful when one lie, one statement, one rumor and your reputation in the eyes of others is trashed and ruined. And yet we shouldn't be surprised that people would slander us. In Matthew 11, for John, that is John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In John 8, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? If this is what they said about Jesus, should we be surprised if people slander us? The reality is, I think, I don't know if we did a survey here, I don't know that many of us have been slandered. So that if we were, it would really catch us off guard. But it shouldn't. Um, this is the type of persecution that, that Jesus spoke of. I'm convinced that physical persecution is the lesser of the two threats, if you wish. Um, that it is the verbal persecution that is the greater threat. Or, and perhaps it is the fear of this persecution that is the greater threat. Um, we don't want to be insulted. We don't want to be slandered. We want to be liked. We don't want to be rejected. And so, if we're not careful, we find ourselves compromising, making decisions that are wrong, getting, or going along with what is wrong because we don't want to be seen as weird. We don't want others, that is non-Christians, to think us as strange or foolish, out of date, fanatical, or the worst of all, intolerant. 
again, I can't help but feel if, in fact, this kind of persecution is far more effective than physical persecution. Because it doesn't really call on us to deny Jesus in word. We don't say, I am not a Christian. But in fact, in our words or in our actions, we may in fact disown him. See, if somebody came up to us with a gun and said, deny Jesus or die, well, none of us want to die. Okay? But I think at that moment, by the grace of God, I think it would strengthen our resolve and we would say, I will not deny Jesus. Um, But if, in fact, a particular action might risk disfavor with family, with neighbors, with friends, with co-workers, we might very well give in and, in fact, not realize that we have done so. I don't know if you heard of the priest who was killed in France uh, uh, during Mass. Two 19-year-old boys came in, and the accounts aren't clear. They, I, I know they slit his throat, but they may have beheaded him. Um, I think in many ways, that happening in church, that seems like, yes, I could do that. But if it's like Peter at a fire, and a young girl comes up and says, weren't, weren't you with Jesus? Then suddenly, it becomes a lot more difficult. The second question is, why are we persecuted? And you might say, well, that's simple, because in the text it says, because of righteousness and because of Jesus. There's this ongoing hostility hostility between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. I understand that, I think. But couldn't God make it so that there would be no persecution? What we find in Scripture is that persecution is not only a part of living in a fallen world, it is a part of God's design. Listen to what we, say, what we find in Scripture. This is to the Thessalonians. And we believe this is the first letter that Paul wrote. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. To live, uh, see, You know quite well that we were destined for them. To these young believers in Thessalonica, Paul is saying, listen, I'm sending Timothy to encourage you. Uh, you're going to go through trials, but this is God's plan, God's design for our lives. And then toward the end of his life, and perhaps the last letter he wrote, Paul said to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is what it means to be a Christian. Peter wrote, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. And Paul and Barnabas, as they are ending their missionary journey and getting ready to go back to Antioch, tell the people in Lystra, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And yet the question comes up again, why? Why? Why, in fact, must we face persecution? I think God has designed it for us to try us, to discipline us, to purify us. Remember the parable of the sower, the seed that fell on rocky ground. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Persecution is in God's hand. He watches over us and he allows it, he uses it to train us, to discipline us, and to purify us. So now the third question is, how can we prepare for persecution? 
or perhaps we better ask, can one prepare for persecution? I would suggest to you that we can. Let me suggest some things. Before persecution comes, we should think about it, about persecution and suffering. After all, we are told that it is our destiny, so we shouldn't be surprised, as Peter says, when something happens as, oh, that's weird, I never expected that. We should, in fact, think about it. And if we do think deeply about this, it will make us more serious, I think, about our life and our faith, and what it means to be a Christian. Secondly, it will bring into perspective our own view of life and how fleeting and temporary life is. And I think if, in fact, we have thought about it beforehand, when persecution comes, it will seem much lighter than it actually is. One has said that the suddenness of an evil adds to the sadness, and I would say the pain. But if, in fact, we have thought, I'm a child of God, as a child of God, I should have an expectation that these things might happen to me, I think we are better prepared. I think we should also avoid those things which hinder our suffering. Um, For example, the love of the world. If we are tied to this world and its system and all it offers, when persecution comes from that world, it's like, I, I thought I was part of the system. Well, if you are a child of God, then you're not part of the system. Then, in fact, you should be prepared for persecution. I think also we should avoid fear. And we've, we've looked at the fear in the past. But again, remember the story of Peter. It is fear that caused him to deny Jesus. And fear can cause us to choose wrong over right. The world and what it has to offer over Jesus. I also think that fear can make persecution appear to be worse than it really is. It's like going to the doctor or the dentist. I know about you, I'm not a big fan of going to the dentist. I'm much better now in my old age than I was when I was younger, but just the anticipation was always far worse than the actual visit itself. I think we really need to think this through when it comes to the matter of persecution. And then we should focus on those things that will help us in our suffering. The Lord Jesus Christ, we should see him as precious. Remember, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, if you're in the desert, water is precious to you. And as we are in this world, Christ should be precious to us. And we should prize what we read in Scripture. Read through this book of Psalms. and Boy, David just seemed to have an awful lot of enemies. But he was always prepared. And in the Psalms, in a sense, he prepares himself for those things that might come against him. The fourth question is, what can we learn from persecution? The first one is big. What it means to be a Christian. The true nature of being a Christian. That is, our sanctification that is joined with suffering. One writer centuries ago said, A true saint carries Christ in his heart and a cross on his shoulder. To be a Christian, we should anticipate that there will be persecution. Jesus told his disciples the night before he was put to death, In this world you will have trouble. I think this aspect of the Christian faith has been forgotten today and even denied by some. 
which is easy to deny living in the United States. Try living in the Middle East and being a Christian. Try living in other parts of the world and being a Christian. There, I think, they have a real sense that being a Christian does, in fact, involve suffering. The pattern we find in Scripture is suffering and then reigning. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Humiliation and then exaltation. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you're ever sharing the gospel with someone, do you mention the whole persecution aspect? I think it's very tempting for us to say, if you come to Christ, your problems will dissolve. They will fade away. I don't know that many of us go to people and say, listen, if you come to Christ and put your faith in him, you will be persecuted. It's like, I think I'll pass. The second thing we can learn from persecution, or about persecution, is that, in fact, it is not a sign of God's anger. And it is not merely the result of living in a sinful or fallen world. Living in a fallen world, we find great injustice all around us. And not just against us, but against all people. People stand up for what is right and they suffer as a result. Some have done nothing and they still suffer and even put, are put to death. This is not persecution. This is suffering, but it is not persecution. Being children of God, we are disciplined and corrected by our Father. And this may involve difficulties and hardships, but this is not persecution either. Persecution is described as people acting and speaking against God's people because they are doing what is right, because they are following Christ, because they are Christians. So persecution is not a sign of God's anger. Thirdly, there is suffering for which we will not be blessed. Here we are told, blessed are you when you are persecuted. Well, there is suffering that we may in fact suffer that is not blessed or we will not be blessed as a result. When we suffer for having done something that is wrong, we should not expect that this beatitude applies to us. Peter wrote in his first letter, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. You notice that the categories are illegal and then antisocial. If you're a meddler, if you're gossip and you suffer, well, that's not persecution. Peter also wrote, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. By the way, that's still not necessarily persecution. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. When we do something wrong and we suffer, we should not say, well, eighth of beatitude, that's my, I'm claiming the eighth beatitude, I will be blessed. No, you will not. The suffering that will not bless us, if you wish, is the suffering that we run into, that we run after persecution so as to suffer. This is a verse you should keep in your minds. Matthew 10:23. Jesus tells his disciples, when you are persecuted in one town, flee to another. In Acts chapter 8, persecution came on the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered in Judea and Samaria. And look at the example of Jesus. Time after time, when people either wanted to grab him to make him king in John 6 or they wanted to grab him to kill him, Jesus slips away. 
Now there did come a time when it was time for him to go to Jerusalem and he set his face as a flint for Jerusalem. But we should not imagine that we will run toward persecution. The story is told of Origen, one of the church fathers, whose father was martyred and Origen wanted to join him. So he was going to run out to be put to death and he couldn't because his mom hid all his clothes and you'd have to go out naked. There's nothing wonderful about running into persecution. It may come without any help on our part, but we should not seek it. Um, I think that persecution and the Christian faith do not involve a martyr complex. Okay. Here at the close, in conclusion, I want to give you some things to consider regarding persecution. First of all, consider for whom it is that we suffer. It is for Christ. And we could not suffer for a better friend. Think of the things that you put up with, that you suffer to get what you want. Very selfish. Are you willing to suffer for him? Would you suffer for your family, for your loved ones? Will you not suffer for Christ? Secondly, consider what Christ has suffered for you. His enemies thought themselves religious. He was slandered. He was betrayed by a friend. He suffered unjustly. He is our example. And consider that our sufferings are relatively light. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This is 2 Corinthians. And in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Also consider that our sufferings are short. Our time here on earth is so short. Pain seems to make time stop, but relative, that's a relative thing. The fact is, our time here is short. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Fifthly, consider that we are not alone. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And as Jesus told his disciples before his ascension, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lastly, consider that it is an honor to suffer for Jesus. After the apostles had been flogged for preaching in Jesus' name, after being told not to, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. I don't know about you, but I'm not into pain, okay? I don't want to suffer. Um, and the Christian faith isn't masochistic, that we somehow pursue persecution. But we should understand that, in fact, it may come. What we should do is understand what is the correct perspective. Temporal, here in this life, or eternal. That what we suffer here is nothing compared to eternity with Christ. And those who are persecuted are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need to recognize here in 2016 that persecution is in fact already here. I think in verbal form. 
And we need to recognize that persecution may come sooner than later in physical form. Um, One minister said that he would die in his bed, but that his successor would die in prison, and that man's successor would be a martyr in the public square. That may happen sooner than we imagine. We should not be surprised. And if, in fact, we suffer physical persecution, we simply join a long line of God's people who have, in fact, suffered for the faith. The story is told of persecution in 16th century Japan. At that point, over 300,000 people had been converted to Catholicism. And 26 of them, including three children, were marched about 480 miles from Kyoto to Nagasaki, to what is now known as the Hill of Martyrs. Uh, their noses and ears were cut off. Um, the minister, or, yeah, the magistrates thought that, in fact, this might discourage them, that they would be taunted as they had, it took them 30 days to make this march. When they got there, the crosses were already there. And one of the young men, he's either 12 or 13, said, uh, show me my cross. Which one is mine? He was ready to die for the faith. I honestly do not expect that we will experience that in my lifetime. We may, but I don't see it. But the verbal persecution is very real. And and our denial, our betrayal, is just as real. See, if somebody put a gun and said, deny Christ, and we did it, that would be a terrible thing, but I think we would... Yeah, because we don't want to die. But then when people confront us, and they don't say, are you a Christian? It's like, well, what do you think about this? And we, well, I don't want to seem to be intolerant. I don't want to be seen as someone who is absolute in his or her opinion. And we, in fact, may deny the faith. In the Beatitudes, Jesus calls us to acknowledge our poverty. The world tells us to be rich. He calls us to mourn. The world calls us to laugh. Jesus wants us to be meek and humble. The world wants us to be self-assertive and self-sufficient. Jesus calls us to hunger to do what is right. And the world says, yeah, I've got something better for you. No wonder persecution is, in fact, the end result. And we should not be surprised. Let's pray together. Father, it seems strange to be speaking of persecution, living when and where we do in this country. There might be random acts of violence. But we just don't expect this. We don't imagine that it could exist in our society. Yet, more often than not, it takes the form that Peter faced and failed. When people ask us, perhaps gently or in a confronting way, in a public way, in front of others, and we become afraid. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who faced his death, who was not afraid. May we, by your grace, be willing, if necessary, to suffer for him. Even if the suffering seems a small thing to be insulted or slandered, 
by your grace, may we stand for what is right. And we know we can't do this on our own because we are poor. We need your grace moment by moment to live as your people in this world. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We pray for Becca and and her health. Give the doctors wisdom that you would touch her and raise her up. Now may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.